I assume the kids are off to Children's Church. And good morning, everyone. I'm glad to have the opportunity to share with you this morning. So you know we're in a series uh, on the book of John. And uh, just last week, uh, Darvin led us through uh, pretty much all of chapter 4, ending in about verse 42. And uh, in that, uh, in that uh, part that uh, Darren unfolded for us last week, uh, we sort of reviewed the story. Jesus was on his way back from uh, Passover in Jerusalem to, uh, to Galilee. But he stops in Samaria, which is a place that no Jew... Uh, would ever go because there was this uh, kind of thing between the Jews and Samaritans and the Jews um, sort of detested and despised the Samaritans. So uh, normally a Jew would go around that area, but uh, Jesus deliberately went into Samaria. And while he was there, he met this woman at the well and they had this discussion and she came to some understanding of who he was. And she went back into town and, and while she was there, she told the story what uh, the person she had met and uh, gathered a bunch of people, and they all went out to, uh, to meet Jesus at the well. And he spent some time with them, and they begged him to stay two more days. And he did, he spent two more days there teaching about the kingdom of God. And that's where Darren left us, uh, about uh, chapter 4 of John, verse 42. And so I'd like to just begin with just a little story as lead into the sermon this morning. And uh, can you imagine uh, a tightrope stretch across the Niagara Falls? There's a thundering sound of the waves crashing in the water below, and uh, all of a sudden the man steps out onto a tightrope that's stretched from the Canadian side to the American side, and he begins to walk this tightrope from one side to the other. Now, that stunning feat made a man by the name of Charles Blondin very famous, actually, in 1859. And so he walked uh, 160 feet above the waves. You can imagine the people watching and ooing and awing and watching the Wondering if he's going to make it or if he's going to fall. I mean, there could be wind. He could misstep. He could fall. But he made it all the way across from one side to the other. And the the crowds cheered, of course. Very exciting to see something like that. But he went on in later later events to do the same thing in a different way. He once crossed in a potato sack. Another time on stilts. Another time on a bicycle. Another time, he actually carried his manager on his back from one side to the other. And there was one time that he carried a little gas stove and cooked an omelet in the middle of the falls and lowered it down into the boat, I think the Maid of the Mist, where the bunch of tourists were below watch, looking up. It's quite, quite an amazing man, and uh, he attracted a lot of tension. But then there was a time that uh, Blondin was uh, uh, doing another event there at the Niagara Falls, and he walked backwards on the tightrope from the American side to the Canadian side, which is quite a feat. And then he returned from one side to the other, pushing a wheelbarrow, blindfolded. So the crowds obviously were amazed, and they were cheering loudly, oohed and awed. And it was said that uh, when he got to the other side with the wheelbarrow, he turned to the audience and asked, do you believe that I can carry a person across on a wheelbarrow, in the wheelbarrow? And the crowd shouted, of course, yes, yes, we know you can do it. We've, we've seen it. We've, you've proved it. There's no doubt. And then he turned and asked, he said, who will volunteer to get into the wheelbarrow? Uh, and apparently no one, not a single person, volunteered. I mean, they believed he could do it. They had seen him do other great things. But they didn't have the kind of faith needed to actually get into the wheelbarrow. 
Uh, this, the sermon this morning isn't about the wheelbarrow, but it does have a little bit of a, a lead into our, our uh, message today from John chapter 4 and verses 43 to 54. And it has something to do about the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for in our lives. So I want to begin by reading verses uh, 43 to 45 in John chapter 4. So you can open your devices or your Bible or whatever and follow along. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his home country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. So now, after leaving Samaria, Jesus goes to Galilee. And John, uh, John makes note here, as he, he records this story, that, that there was an earlier trip to Galilee... Uh, when Jesus had spoke those words that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And the background to that story is that at an earlier time, he'd went to his hometown of Nazareth, where he grew up, and there he began to speak to the people. And at first there was a bit of a, res- a good response, but all of a sudden, when he began to talk about some pretty challenging things in their lives, they, they got angry, in fact, so angry that they, they actually tried to kill him. They pushed him out to the edge of the cliff and tried to, tried to force him over the edge. So it wasn't a very good reception that he had that first time there. And that is when he said a prophet has no honor in his home country. So that's a bit of the background here to what John is, is recording that Jesus had said. But now he goes back to Galilee, back to the place of, of the rejection. And we wonder, why would, he, why would he do that? Why would he go back to the place where he was rejected and, and actually an attempt to kill him was made? And the reason for that is that Jesus wanted to give them another opportunity to accept him. Just like he comes to our, into our lives again and again, offering himself to us, offering himself to us. And even those times when people reject him, he continues to reach out to them. God is not willing that anybody should perish, but all should come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But then John goes on to say that after he arrived in Galilee, the crowds welcomed him. So this kind of a contradiction here. On one hand, he uh, is going to Galilee where he was ejected. On the other hand, he's coming now, a later time, and he's welcomed. So this seems like somewhat of a contradiction. On one hand, rejected. On the other hand, welcomed. And John gives us the reason in verse 45, when he says, it was because these people had been to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And while they're there, they had seen all that Jesus had done. They saw the miracles that Jesus had, had performed there in, in, in their presence. And it was for that reason that they welcomed him. It was for that reason because they'd seen it and he was now in their part of the, of the, of the country and they wanted to see more. Everybody loves a show. And I think it would be no different here today if some, um, something a miraculous, miraculous person came in and was doing great things in Swift Current, I'm sure he would gather a great crowd. People just love a show and the excitement. These people were fans. They were spectators. They were miracle seekers. And so when Jesus arrived in their territory, they, they gladly welcomed him because they wanted to see so much more of what he could do and maybe what he could do for them. It's important to note here that there's quite a difference in the, rea- in the reception that he received here in Galilee than the one he received by the Samaritans. You remember that, that he went, when he went to the Samaritans, uh, he was 
he was welcomed in a place he shouldn't have been. Chapter 4, 39 has these words. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. And when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. There's quite a difference here. In Samaria, where he should have felt rejection, he was accepted and welcomed. And you know, he, it doesn't tell us he spent, did any miracles in Samaria. As far as we know, no miracles were performed there. So the people there believed in Jesus, had faith in him based on what he said, according to his words. They took him at his word and believed. The Galileans, however, at least in an early encounter there, when Jesus opened his mouth to teach them, he faced rejection. They wanted him, they wanted the miracles, but not his words. That's why John says in chapter 1, 11 and 12, he was in the world, and though the world was made by him, the world did not know him. He came to those who were his own, but his own did not receive him. Now we move on to 46 to 47. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And so now Jesus in Galilee, he goes to Cana. And you remember what happened there? He had turned the water into wine at an earlier visit. So now he returns to the same place and he's speaking to a crowd there. And suddenly he is interrupted by a man who is desperate to talk to him. And John tells us that it was a royal official which likely indicates that he was some relative of King Herod Antipas who was uh, ruling over Israel at the time. And so he's a, he's a well-known, important person. And when this person had heard that Jesus was in Cana, which is not far from where he lived, he lived in Capernaum, it's 18, possibly 18 to 20 miles away, he made a trip there. And then we find out the reason for the trip. He's desperate. His son is dying. A parent's worst nightmare. Some of you have been through that. The threat of losing a child. Some have. Others might. And so he begins to plead with Jesus to come and heal his son who is dying. You know, you get really desperate when, when your child is gravely ill. Or, or a loved one, a spouse, parent, friend. And it's really heart-wrenching when you get the news that there's no cure and that your child has very little chance of surviving. A life-threatening illness, our own or a loved one's, just has a way of changing our perspective on life and of faith. Now, just think that royal official was wealthy, he was powerful, probably had all the social connections, probably had a reputation. And yet for all that, for all his connections, all that he had, all that he owned, all the power that he might have wielded, 
in society, none of that, not a single bit of that, could restore his son's health. And isn't it true that once your health is gone, what have you got left? And when your health is gone, there's lots of times you just cannot buy it back. It's true today, we have lots of good medical help to, uh, to help us in our illnesses. And some people go and find health at other places, like Germany or sometimes in the States and that kind of thing. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. But when you lose your health, you've lost basically pretty much everything. And then this man in his desperation is willing to lay all his entitlements aside and humble himself and go, and go to Jesus, the itinerant, traveling Jewish person, poor, of little means and little background, He's willing to lay it as all his entitlement aside and go to that person, that Jesus, and ask, beg, plead for the life of his son. We often find this kind of desperation at the hospital. A serious illness, a life-threatening situation, has a way of turning people's attention to God. And certainly not everyone, it doesn't happen all the time, but in many cases, that is the exact time when they're more open and alert to God's presence or their need of a God in their life than, than ever before. It just has a way of breaking through all our pride and all our independence, all the things we trusted on, and turning our attention to God. Some open themselves to the reality of God in a, in a new way, and maybe for the first time ever, especially when they're facing a life-threatening illness of a child. Most parents would give anything to save their child. And I've noticed that some Christians, when going through a serious illness or a life-threatening situation, will testify afterwards, once they're through it, that the illness drew them closer to God. Some will say they were closer to God during that illness than they had ever been. Uh, The experience seems to change some Christians from being complacent in their faith, experiencing apathy to becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus. But sadly, that's not true for everyone. Some people, in the case of illness, will go numb. And they find it hard to reach out to God. They find it hard to pray. They find it hard to even have God thoughts in their illness. Sadly, that's true for some people. But the fact remains that a life-threatening situation can be the starting point to awakening a person's faith in a new and powerful way. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, and he shouts in our pain. Which is literally saying that sometimes those are times when we hear God's voice clearer and more loudly than we ever have before. The story goes on to 48 to 50. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. The royal official said, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. So Jesus' words here at first seem rather harsh, don't they? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But the word Jesus used here for you is actually plural. So he's not just addressing the man, he's addressing the the larger crowd that's there. Those who were sign seekers. Those who were spectators, not just the man. And it would seem to me that perhaps he was actually also testing the man 
trying to draw out of him the, the kind of faith that Jesus was looking for, the kind of faith that he, he really needed most in life. And then we look at the story. We know he's desperate, and he continues to plead with Jesus. I don't know if it was pleading or begging. We assume uh, that he was on his knees, pleading with Jesus, because he has a son that he wants saved and rescued and healed. And then look at the inter- interchange between the two. The man says, come, heal my child before he dies. And Jesus says, go, your son lives. The man says, come, Jesus says, go. And I can imagine what it would be like. Jesus, the, the man obviously wanted Jesus to come along with him. And typical to that day and probably today is we kind of expect that if a healer was there to come along with us, he would, he would walk with us. He'd come to the place. He'd lay his hands on, on the sick person or, or pray something over them. But Jesus says, you go by yourself. And I, I imagine in his mind he's saying, he's not coming with me. Go by myself? Can I really believe him? How can he heal my son from here? My, my son is 18 miles away. And then we read these words that the official took Jesus at his word, turned and went home. Now where have we heard those words? Took Jesus at his word. In Samaria, the Samaritan people took Jesus at his word and believed. They had the kind of faith that Jesus was looking for, the kind of faith he was trying to draw out of this man or draw this man into. And so the man went on his way. I'm sure he had doubts. I'm sure he's still a little uncertain how this was going to turn out. But he believed him because of his word and not simply because of what he could do or the miracles he had done. As far as we know, the man hadn't seen any miracles. You might say the man was willing to get into the wheelbarrow. And then the story goes on. Verse 51. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And the father father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So the royal official is on his way home, still probably uncertain as to what he would find when he got there. He met, met his servants on the way. They tell him that his son is alive. And when he asked the exact time that it happened, he discovered that it had happened exactly the same time that Jesus had said, your son will live. And that says he got home, and he and his whole family believed. Kind of a good story. Heartwarming story. A whole family changed because of what Jesus did. Jesus can heal from a distance. He can heal from heaven. He can heal with the command of his voice. He can heal with a physical touch. He can heal through the Holy Spirit. He can heal through the prayers of a believer. He can heal through the prayers of a person who has a gift of healing. 
He can heal through us as we pray for people. He can heal through doctors and he can heal through drugs. And that should encourage, encourage us to know that God is the one who can heal in any number of ways at any time he wants according to his will. And we should pray for those who are sick and those who are ill. And often we do. And when it's a serious illness, we keep praying that God would restore them and grant them, and grant them health and, and raise them up. We pray for the family around that because a sick person always has a family around them and that they are affected as well. And then at a certain time when it's closer to the end and it looks like they're not going to make it, then we begin to pray. And we do this sometimes. We pray that God would take, take them home. And this is, this is the case for a lot of, uh, certainly a lot of elderly people and those who are really sick. There is a time when you just pray that God would take them home, spare them from the pain and suffering and the agony that they're going through. In, in, the, in the meadows, there's people there that are certainly elderly and some, some are still doing well and others are languishing and wanting to go home. I visited a lady this week Thursday. Her name is Margaret. She's over 100 years old and... Uh, it's getting really difficult for her to be around. And uh, this is the first time she's ever said it, but she just said, uh, they sat down to talk with her, he said, I wish I were dead. <laughs> it's like, whoa, that's pretty direct. But uh, really what she's saying is what a lot of, a lot of seniors uh, say in a time like that is that they just wish they could go home to be with the Lord. And she, she is a believer, of course, and does, that makes all the difference. But you see that there. But there is also a situation, I, I, I don't know, I should maybe ask you, if you were in the hospital sick, and uh, someone like myself came, came along and uh, talked to you for a bit and said, uh, could I pray for you? Would you say yes? And the answer, of course, I'm sure you would say, oh, yes, of course. But I've found that quite often I'm visiting a person who is from a religious background or a church, goes to church in town here. And I visited and they'll be telling me their story, their sick, their illness. And it could be a person that's uh, got some... Uh, that could have some long-term uh, implications from the illness. They may not never, ever be able to go back to their home. They may have to go to uh, the care home or, or someplace where they need lots of care. They don't know what the future lies. They don't know if they're going to find the real reason of, of the illness or if they're going to get cured or not. And after all of that, uh, before I leave, I'll say, well, can I pray for you? And all of a sudden, oh, no, 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 I'll be okay. And I, I just don't get it. And I understand some people prefer to be prayed for by their own minister maybe in a certain way or not, but, uh, but I'm there to, uh, ins- to pray for them. And they've just told me how desperate they are. And on the other hand, when I offer to pray for them, oh, no, that's, that's, that's fine. <laughs> and then you get a, 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 a rancher, usually, it's usually a rugged old rancher. He's not looking very good. He's cranky as can be. He does not want to be in the hospital. He's sick. He wants to be out of there, but can't be. And I'll be sharing with him, i try to get a bit of his story, and he's not religious at all, and that's very clear from his language. And then towards the end of the conversation, it's, uh, I'll uh, say, well, it's a nice chat with you, I'll drop around and see you again, or something to that effect, and, and uh, not expecting that this person would be any, anywhere near open to prayer. And just as I turn to go, he says, well, could you say one of, those, one of those prayers for me or something? So you never know how an illness works in people's heart to make them open to God, ready to hear, ready to turn, ready to seek his help. Because when everything's stripped away, where do you turn? When doctors can't fix you and family can't fix you, you turn to the Lord. Or should. And of course, that's balanced by the other side of it, by those who 
even to their last breath. I want nothing to do with God. So I have a, just to highlight a few points as, we, as I close this morning. And the first one is, seeing may produce fans and spectators, but that's not the kind of faith Jesus is looking for. We see that in the, in the Galileans here. There is a kind of believing that looks good and even sounds good. But it's not the kind that honors Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's not the kind of faith that leads to repentance, salvation, and a changed life. It's the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for the kind of faith that's willing to get into the wheelbarrow. And the second one then, life-threatening experiences are fertile soil for awakening a person's faith. You know, sometimes an illness we think is the worst possible thing could happen to us. But sometimes, sometimes it's the thing that God is wanting to use in our lives. Remember that when you or a loved one experiences a serious or life-threatening illness. It just might be the thing that brings you closer to God, more dependent on him than you've ever been before. It might be the thing that finally gets your attention, awakens a faith that is real and alive in you. And it might be the thing that brings you to your knees to get your heart right with God before you die. That could be the outcome of it. And lastly, then the last one is, be persistent in prayer. And we see that in the, in the royal official. Man, he, he was persistent. He wasn't going to be put off. He pleaded and kept pleading. He was persistent. And he would not give up as long as there was a single possibility that Jesus would come and heal his son. So I encourage you then to pray for those who are ill. Could be a child, a spouse, a parent, a friend, a church member. And take that another step. Pray for the lost in your life and your family. And we all have them. We all have people in our family or in our community who are lost and need the Lord. Pray for them and don't give up. Be persistent. Don't give up. I'm going to invite Darren to come and uh, close our service with a benediction this time. They took him at his word. That's beautiful. But that's hard. Because we want to see the miracle. We want to see it. But to simply take him at his word. A friend of mine came to encourage me on Friday. And I needed that a lot. And my friend reminded me of this story in Second Chronicles. <clears throat> the king Jehoshaphat. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and some of the Meuites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told him, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, on the other side of the Dead Sea. They're already in Hazazon Tamar, and that's En Gedi. Alarmed, the king resolved to inquire of the Lord. He proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to come seek help. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the courtyard. And this is what he said. Lord, God of our ancestors, 
Are you not the God who's in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms, nations, power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to them forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They've lived in it. They've built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether it's the sword of judgment or plague or a famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress. You will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them. They didn't destroy them. See how they're repaying us? By coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power, listen to this, we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. All the men, the women, the children stood before the Lord. And then through the prophet, a couple verses later, this is what the Lord said. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged because of this vast army. The battle is not yours. It's God's. Go out to face them tomorrow. The Lord will be with you. And everyone fell face down in worship. They took him at his word, even when the army was overwhelming in size. They just took him at his word. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that this morning I'm choosing one more time to take you at your word. I want to thank you for the beautiful story of the royal official who took you at your word, and he believed. Sometimes it feels like I'm facing a vast army. Sometimes it feels like nothing's working out. Sometimes it's discouraging. Life at home, life in the church, it can be tough. But today I'm choosing to take you at your word. Today I'm going to go home with confidence that this battle is yours that you are going to provide the healing, that I can trust you. You've been faithful for thousands of years. Why would that change now? Even when the size of the army feels crushing, the weight of the responsibility crippling, the pain that we're facing, overwhelming. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. I don't know what to do but I'm going to take you at your word and believe. Lord, would you care for our church family in the deepest way possible? Would you meet their needs, their fears and their pains? Would you meet them in their joy? Would they have confidence that they can take you at your word? For the little kids that came up and heard the story to the oldest person in the sanctuary, would they learn to take you at your word and believe? Would you be our healer? King Jesus.
Dismiss this church with your blessing. Take care of us, God. Guide us and speak to us words of wisdom by your Holy Spirit. We love you. Amen. Amen. We'll see some of you this afternoon at 2 o'clock, and the rest of you, we'll see you next week.